Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith, and this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 57. 57 and we're still in quarantine. We're still, who would have thought? Who would have known <laughs> months ago? I was just listening to a podcast. I think it was Crime Junkie and they had pre-recorded a bunch of episodes and she's like, it's March now. And I'm sure by the time this comes out, we will not be in quarantine or I pray that we're not in quarantine. And I was like, keep praying. <laughs> Keep praying because we're still in quarantine. But what just happened last night? Well, the Atlanta mayor finally did a mask mandate. Yes. In Atlanta. Now it is mandatory that everyone in Atlanta has to wear a mask when when in public, which is great. At least it's something. There's some leadership happening here. We're getting things under control, I hope, because... Everything is all over the place, and it's very, very scary, and things are just getting worse, and I'm ready for it to be over. Yeah. I'm ready for it to be over, too. <laughs> I don't know why. Mask. I was like, yes, me too. Wear your goddamn masks, people. You can wear a fucking mask. You can wear a fucking mask. Just do it. It's for you and for me. It's for <laughs> all of us. Wear a mask. I mean, I know all the dum-dums are wearing masks. I know you guys are. Should we get into some quick haze? Yes, let's do it. You're first. Okay. So my friend Naomi, who I've, I've talked about on the podcast before. Hello, Nene. Hello. Um, she had sent me a BuzzFeed article of like these quarantine love stories, and they were all very, very sweet. And I think I'm going to do it another time. But I'm not feeling sweet today. <laughs> Ooh. I'm going to save that for another time. Thank you, Naomi. But I stumbled upon a different article for BuzzFeed, and I thought it would be fun. It's by... Natasha Jokic, and it's titled 17 Unpopular Wedding Opinions That Might Get You a Little Fired Up. Okay. So I thought I'd read some of them, and you and I can sound off on if we agree or dis- you know, disagree. Jen, you know I love to get fired up. <laughs> get fired up. Let's get fired up. Okay. So, by the way, right before this podcast started, Sally and I were like, want whining about, and then... What are we going to do about school? And what are we going to do about this? <laughs> and Sally's husband, Ben, was like, you guys sound ready to do a podcast. <laughs> so Sally and I had to pump ourselves up to, like, give you guys good energy. Um, good energy or just energy? <laughs> just any okay. energy is good. I don't know. So the first one is by Casual Coach 82 wrote in and said, um, speeches are terrible. Nobody cares that you were best friends in elementary school. We all just want to eat and get drunk, so hurry it up. I don't care about a speech. Sometimes speeches are funny. I think, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. If you're, like, waiting to eat for a speech then maybe that's... Oh, I would always put speeches after everybody's eaten. Yeah, right? It's like during dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Later. Speech. I did... There were a lot of speeches at my wedding. You know, it's just... We're so beloved. Yeah. Everybody had to say something. (laughs) No, we just... uh, I don't know. I don't know why. Well, I mean, it's like... My parents were are divorced, so it's like my mom gave a speech and my dad gave a speech, and then my brother was my best man and Aaron was my maid of honor, so they both gave speeches, and then Ben's brother gave a speech, and 
it was all very sweet. It was I all... think speeches, to me, this like... I actually, you know what, thinking about it, I think that they're kind of like the best part of the wedding as far as like the most sentimental part of the wedding. Yeah. Like, honestly, the ceremony... It's like 20 minutes tops. You know what I mean? But the speeches, it's like, I feel like that's the whole point of the wedding is everybody coming together to honor the bride and the groom or the groom and the groom or the bride and the bride and um, express their love for them. Right. It's like, hey. And give their blessings. You know what I say to that person? Don't be a dick. Don't be a dick or don't go to the wedding. Just relax. Just take your drink into the bathroom. You know what? (laughs) Drink in there. I bet right now you would kill to be at a speech wedding. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The second one is from Happy Hatch. Wrote in saying, wearing a white wedding dress is so unbelievably overrated. Queen Victoria is why the white wedding dress thing still exists. Wear the color you like and the style you like. I don't care what people wear to their wedding. Wear whatever you want. That is never... Yeah, whatever. Wear whatever. (laughs) Salamander Sorcerer said, bouquet tosses are humiliating for your single friends. It's like throwing your garbage at them because they're not married yet. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of agree. I agree with that one. Did you? You had a bouquet toss. I did. I did not have a bouquet toss. Oh, I made it funny and I just, I I think I talked about this the other day. I like just threw it at my friend Anna's face like as hard as I could. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, but I was never offended by a bouquet toss. I kind of feel like at someone's wedding, like do whatever you want. Yeah. Like do all their traditions or do none of the traditions. And like if I find it tacky or if I find it like whatever, then that's who cares? It's not my wedding. Here's one that I totally disagree with. Okay. Donna Van Loo's dinner mm-hmm. said having an open bar is ridiculous and expensive. Offer wine on the tables during the meal and toast, but let your friends get hammered on their own dime. No. Unacceptable. 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 The only way to get through a wedding is with an open bar. Yes, that's the whole point of an open bar. <laughs> and I like I'm very highly offended if I go to a wedding and there is not an open bar. I agree. Just, yeah. I agree. Okay, I take back my previous statement about do whatever you want. It's like, do whatever you want, but you better have an open bar. Even if it's just beer and wine. That's great. That's great. Here's one. Don't invite babies. No one wants to hear Jessica crying during the middle middle of your vows. Sometimes people, it's just like, that's a case-by-case yeah. case sort of thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes people want to have their nieces and nephews there. Sometimes yeah. people can't come to the wedding unless there's, unless they can bring their baby. Right. And so, and if that person really wants that person there. Yeah. Yeah. We had lots of kids at our wedding. I mean, we got wedding, married at summer camp. It was like mm-hmm. a perfect place for kids. Kids were invited to my wedding, but none of them came to my wedding because everyone wanted to party because it was in New Orleans. Yeah. I like this one. The garter toss just makes me uncomfortable. Like, I know y'all have sex, but I don't need to see your head go up her dress. (laughs) I don't like a garter toss. I don't like a garter toss either. It gives me out. It makes me very... I do. Yes, it makes me completely uncomfortable. I always look at the parents like, (laughs) you guys okay with us? It's just weird. It is weird. It is weird. But again, I didn't have it in my wedding because I didn't like it. But I also didn't wear a garter. Why would I wear a garter? Why? Why? But I'm never like, you know, hey, if you did that at your wedding. I didn't wear a garter. I'll do one more. Okay. uh, Amy... K four five three E six eight four nine two Z. Oh, I know her. Oh no, no, I know four five three. <laughs> oh, sh- 
different Amy K four five three E six. Most of the time, she says, um, most of the time when couples write their own vows, they are cringy, lame, and sappy, and they don't reflect the proper gravity of what you're meant to be committing. I really love traditional vows. My husband and I use them, and I could imagine our ancestors all echoing the timeless words. Well, Amy K, you sound like a wordsmith. Uh, Amy, you sound like a real stick in the mud. You wouldn't be fun anywhere. Like what? Who cares? Who cares? Yeah, I think the traditional vows say whatever they want. Yeah, traditional vows are for people with no imagination. (laughs) (laughs) So I can't do traditional vows. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I just didn't like. What a, I don't know. I just didn't. No, I, was I like, just don't. tell me what to say and I'll say it. I would hundred percent agree. Yeah. I, that's. I really am like whatever you want to do at your wedding. Like who? Yeah. Cares? Who cares? Except for the open bar thing. Except for the open bar thing and the garter and thing. The garter thing. Otherwise, we are open. We're so do open minded. We're so relaxed when it comes to wedding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your that's, turn. That's great. Okay. Okay, Jen. I got my information from the Bluefield Daily Telegraph by Jessica Farish and from an article on Oxygen.com by Sharon Lynn Pruitt. Ooh. Okay, so uh, this happened just this June. So just after 8 p.m. on June 1st, uh, 911 operators in Raleigh County, West Virginia, got a call saying a woman named Julie Wheeler had gone over a cliffside at an overlook at Grandview State Park. Whoa. Yeah, so Julie's uh, 17-year-old son and her husband, Rodney, said she had fallen from the main overlook at New River Gorge National River Park um, while trying to retrieve an earring. And I don't know if you've ever driven through New River Gorge. It's um, it's southern West Virginia, and it's it's gorgeous. I mean, it's really beautiful. It's where everybody goes whitewater rafting. But the Grandview Overlook is 1,400 feet above oh, the geez. river. So. Authorities searched for Julie Wheeler for two days. Emergency crews were there from all over. They used rope. There were divers. Um, They were looking in the river. They were looking in cliffs. They brought rescue dogs to search. And the dogs detected Julie's scent at the top of the overlook, but then they couldn't find her anywhere else. Um, Search and rescue officers found a cell phone over the cliff on the Monday. So it happened on a Sunday. And then on Monday, officials reported that a shoe was also found rescuers in helicopters said they couldn't find any signs of disturbance in the in the trees or the foliage so it didn't look like she had gone into the trees and then they had also failed um, to find any sign of her so this happened Sunday like I said and then investigators hadn't released Julie's identity to the public but on Monday evening Rodney um, her husband made a Facebook post around 7 30 and he asked the public to pray for Julie he said the accident at Grandview yesterday inv- involved my wife. They haven't found her yet, but I'm holding out hope that she will be found and she is okay. I'm heartbroken and lost right now, but I have faith. Please give us time to work through this and please keep us in your thoughts and prayers. And Rodney's friends and family must have really prayed very hard because two days later, the authorities did find Julie Wheeler alive and well. Oh my God. Hiding in a closet in her home. <gasps> So local she faked her own <laughs> falling off a cliff. Faked her own falling off a cliff. So uh, local police had come to search the couple's home. They got no warrant to look for electronics, um, like cell phones and stuff from the house because they were like, we gotta find however any clues. And when they went, they found Julie hiding in a downstairs closet. Holy shit! Did yeah. he know? 
did he? Yeah, apparently uh, Rodney and his son had planted the items at like the cell phone and this the shoe. This is some like, what is that kid? The bubble boy shit. The guy, the kid, the, the balloon boy. <laughs> the balloon boy. I don't know the balloon boy. What? You don't remember the whole thing where the dad faked that his son had oh gotten in a giant balloon and was floating in the air? Yes. Oh my god. Yes. <laughs> How could oh I have forgotten God. that? That was insane. <laughs> yeah, so they had put the items, lied to police. They had made the 911 call in order to fake her disappearance. And why did they do this? Why? Uh, well, because in February of this year, Julie Wheeler had pled guilty to federal health care fraud after an investigation investigation into pill mill clinic operations part of like doctors and nurses in these clinics giving out pain pills to people which is like it's, yeah it's so like early 2000s um <laughs> so when she faked her own death she was due to be sentenced she had already pled guilty but she was due to be sentenced on june 17th and this all happened on june 1st so she was wow. recaptured and then she was sentenced to three and a half years in prison for the fraud charges but for faking her death, she and her husband were both arrested and have been charged with fraudulent schemes, conspiracy, uh, giving false information, false emergency accident, obstructing an officer, and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Dude, and they're she just still got double arrested. Yeah, they're still waiting, going to court for the new charges. So. Oh. My God. Isn't that nuts? It's crazy. I was like looking through the news articles and at first it's like, woman goes over a cliff at Greenview. And then it was like, police haven't been able to, rescuers haven't been able to find her. And then every, like the next line of everyone was like the next day. I was like, she's found alive and well Whoa. in her house. Oh my God. Oh, I can't That's wait to show you the pictures. Nuts. A bunch of dum-dums. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Man, that was, that was a Great quickie. Thank you. <laughs> I feel inadequate now. I feel <laughs> like mine was not up to par. I had a lot of with fun yours. with that. <laughs> I didn't realize some of those things that I had such a strong opinion. Yeah. Maybe we're just real fired up today. Yeah. Oh, man. Are you ready for a crazy story? Yes. I'm really ready. I can't believe that I haven't heard of this before this one is nuts okay it has it all it's nuts. all right okay and i was very like drawn to this because you know that <clears throat> i've been listening to um the podcast guru <gasps> i started start? listening to oh, it yeah, i did it i was like i'll do the dishes i'll do whatever because i was like i just want to keep listening to yeah, it yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's great. I'm not. I finished the first three episodes, and I think one more has come out. Yeah, it just came out. I listened to it yesterday. It's pretty good. And when it ended, it was like, what? <laughs> so I can't wait for the next. So this story came from a lot of my information came from Murderpedia, an article for the Daily Mail UK, and also an episode of Snapped Killer Couple. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Justin and. Taylor Heltzer were brothers who were raised by traditional Mormon parents in Martinez, which is a small town northeast of San Francisco. Okay. Do you know? I don't. I don't either. I mean, I know where San Francisco is. I know where that is. Yeah. I've been. <laughs> so um, they, Justin and Taylor had a pretty normal childhood, except for the fact that their parents believed that Taylor, the older brother, mm-hmm. was um, the second coming of Christ. Oh. <laughs> 
literally. Oh. Yeah. From the second Man, he, poor Justin. Like, Dude, okay. So from the second he was born, his mother said that he is a prophet of God. I feel like a lot and of younger siblings are like, I know that feeling. Oh man, you're gonna feel that throughout this whole story. Okay. Okay. So as a second sibling, <laughs> I feel it. I'm sure my brother is listening. I'm sure he's like, fuck you, Sally. Yeah. I, I was like the baby and everybody was like, oh. oh. <laughs> but, baby Sally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Taylor became the more charming and outgoing brother. Um, probably, probably because he was constantly told that he was the prophet of God. Uh-huh. That'll do it. That'll do it. That will do it. And so, and then Justin was much more shy and introverted. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, Justin really looked up to his older brother, Taylor. Taylor. And even though Taylor would tell him, I'm number one and you're number two. Cool. But yeah. Sounds like awesome. Douche. So after um, they graduated high school, they both had to fulfill their Mormon requirements of completing two years in the mission field. Uh-huh. So Taylor went to Brazil and Justin went to Texas. And when they went back to California, Justin be- uh, got a job as a cable installer and Taylor became a stockbroker at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter in San Francisco. So okay. Taylor was like this flashy mm-hmm. stockbroker guy. And around the same time, Taylor met and married a woman named Anne in 1993, and they had two daughters, but they separated three years later because Taylor decided that he was tired of being a good husband and Mormon after three years. Like, okay. this is boring. Wait, so, so three years and two daughters, so basically she was pregnant at Probably the entire time. Irish twins, maybe. But yeah, she was pregnant or had a newborn the entire time they were married. And he was like, this is too hard. It's like, yeah, yeah it is fucking hard. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm just going to go ahead and start by saying I do not like this. Yeah. <laughs> no like it. Okay, so, good. Well, then I'm going to talk shit. <laughs> you can talk as much shit as you want to. Okay. So he said that he wanted to expand his life outside of the church mm-hmm. and he wanted to try what he called the normal life okay basically what he wanted to do was drink and do drugs and have sex with other women Mm -hmm. and um and he did all of those things and then he eventually got kicked out of the church the mormon church but he's the second coming of i know what's he gonna do maybe start his own church maybe and so he lost his job as a stockbroker uh-huh he had nowhere to go and kicked out of the church so his family when when you're mormons like right. his parents wouldn't take him in and so then um he asked justin if mm. he could move in with him Old number two yeah number two let me in and so justin was actually really excited like here's my golden child brother and now he needs my help yeah and so he was more than happy to take him in and he supported both of mm-hmm. them. So soon after they after he moved in, they stopped going to church on Sundays. Justin still went to church, but Taylor didn't. Yeah. And they grew out their hair long. Ooh. Together. They both did. This was in the nineties. Okay. So it's like very Nirvana esque. Uh-huh. And so uh, they and they started wearing all black. So they looked like, you know, long haired goth guys. So they did, however, decide to go to one of the church functions on Memorial Day of 1999. They went to a murder mystery dinner held at a Mormon temple, which sounds not (laughs) Mormon-y, but they did. 
the Helta boys were both there and they were dressed in all black. Mm-hmm. So they and had they were really tall, all black and had long hair. So they stood out among, you know, suburban white shirt khakis crowd yeah. that was there. It was there that Justin caught the eye of a young woman named Dawn Godman. Okay. Okay, so Don Godman was raised in Sutter Creek, which is also outside of San Francisco. She And growing up, she was kind of an outcast. Mm-hmm. Um, she struggled with her weight, and she didn't have many friends, and they said that she was a loner in high school. So when she was 19, the first man that even showed her any attention, she married him. This is where... So on one source, I saw that she gave birth to a son, and then another source that said that she had a baby girl, who sadly, right after the birth from complications from the birth, the child passed away. So it was either a boy or a girl, I'm not sure. And then they had a second son who lived. Her and her husband divorced a few years later because she was so depressed from the loss of her child. that uh, And nobody really helped her through that. And so she kind of just fell into drugs and alcohol to feel better. And so when he left her and then... um, she was living in out of her car and she had also tried to kill herself by overdosing on pills and she was living out of her car so when her ex-husband presented that in court she ended up losing custody of her son right so she was at rock bottom and then she moved in with a relative who was living in martinez and got a job at a grocery store and a coworker at the grocery store saw that she was struggling and suggested that maybe she go to a service with them to a Mormon at a Mormon church. Mm-hmm. And so she started attending services at the Mormon church, you know, trying to find direction, even though her parents were Pentecostal and they didn't like the fact that she was becoming a Mormon, but the Mormon church just really spoke to her and she knew it was the right fit for her. Yeah. It gave her a community and support and friends. You know, she was just doing really well. Right. So now here she is at this event and she sees Justin. And, you know, like I said, he's all dressed in all black with long hair and a ponytail. Mm-hmm. You know, he looks like this mysterious guy. When they talk, they totally hit it off. She was an outcast growing up, and he always lived under his brother's shadow. And then the fact that Don is giving him attention and not his brother, right? he needed that. And then he gave her the self-esteem that she needed really badly, like, here's this guy that's giving me all this attention. And so they fell in love very quickly, and soon after, Don ended up moving into the house with Justin and Taylor. Okay. So... One day, Taylor, the older brother, decides that he needs some direction in his life, and he sees that there's a self-help workshop, and he asks John and Justin to go with him. Mm-hmm. So they go to this workshop with them, and the workshop is about confronting your inner demons. Okay. And it was, like, very intense, and they all, like, loved it, but Taylor especially loved it because he saw that the person that was giving the workshop was using these psychological manipulation techniques uh-huh. and Taylor was like I want to do that oh yeah you know? yeah and he was like that's my so not like oh that's awful he was like oh that's oh yeah I want to I want to psychologically manipulate others yeah make money so he not long after he decided that he was going to be a spiritual mentor and he told Justin and Don that they were going to be his followers and they were just like okay right <laughs> So for months, 
Taylor was their spiritual mentor and he and they took his seminars. He would make them take seminars like in their house. Yeah. But he took his seminars a step further by making them take hallucinogenic drugs. Ah. Genic mm-hmm. drugs during his sermons. And he would tell them, oh, that God has spoken to him and he has a new mission. Uh-huh. And his mission is to get rid of the Mormon church and start his own religion. Uh-huh. That he was the second coming of Christ. I wonder where he got that idea from, <laughs> parents. <laughs> and that he, it was up to him to defeat evil. So, of course, Justin and John went along with it because Justin was also always taught that his brother was a prophet right. growing up. And then Dawn was just so in love with Justin that she went along with whatever they were doing, yeah. you know? And so they basically became their own cult and they called themselves the Children of Thunder. <laughs> Cute. The, have you ever seen the movie Rad, the BMX bike movie from yes. the 80s? And the thunder in your heart. Every move is like a lady. It's the power you feel when you get your taste of the glory. Sorry. Oh, that's that a perfect song a really, for that. I know. So I just pictured them like a, a montage getting of done montage. And that song playing in the background. I'm like, I shouldn't joke about this because it's all very serious. But so Taylor would start all of his sentences with, Spirit says before he said anything, like that he would like in the like spirit is telling me, Mm -hmm. go get me a cup of coffee. (laughs) Spirit is saying, wash my car. So he scribbled a list of maxims, which were the 12 principles of magic on a scrap of paper. And then he made Don and Justin memorize them. And the principles were, I am already perfect and therefore can do nothing wrong i gain control by losing control things like that and they all just did what they're like okay whatever you say yeah and so then they wanted to start another group called impact america which was going to be their group to like their company to change the world or whatever yeah and taylor came up with several different criminal schemes in order to finance it Uh uh-huh one involved setting up a subsidiary called Intimacy, which would sell drugs and prostitutes to wealthy businessmen. They would go to raves and hand out flyers to women to try to recruit call girls to like be a part of that. And then that didn't work. And then another scheme, they were, they were going to try to import underage girls from Brazil, where Taylor had been a missionary, um, to seduce businessmen. And then they would later blackmail them into giving them money. Okay. So that was another scheme that didn't work. And then they had another scheme <laughs> that they would adopt Brazilian orphans who they'd train as assassins. <laughs> I'm to, sorry. I know. I'm That's telling you, the story so is ridiculous, dude. <laughs> so they would train these Brazilian orphans as assassins to kill the 15 leaders of the Mormon church in Utah. Mm -hmm. And once the church leadership was dead, then Taylor would take over the institution. Uh He believed um, that by doing that, um, he was fulfilling the prophecy in the Book of Mormon. Okay. But then they decided, you know, this is all a little too hard. Let's just do this instead. So they 
settled on a plan to extort money from one of Taylor's former clients. Because when he was a stockbroker, he managed money of numerous retirees and they had a ton of money. And so he had a long list of people that he can choose from. And so he just seems so much simpler. Yeah, so (laughs) simple. So he ended up choosing, uh, unfortunately, 78-year-old Annette Steinman and her husband Ivan Steinman, who was 85. They were married 55 years, and they were just retired and living a few miles from the house that Taylor, Justin, and Don were living in. Uh-huh. So Taylor had been their stockbroker, and the couple completely trusted him. They even cultivated a friendship. He would drop in and visit them, and one day they went river rafting along with their daughter Nancy. They were buddies, and yeah. he treated them like a son. It, what's crazy is that the Steinmans weren't Taylor's first choice. He had written down the name of five different clients, but the first man who they went to his house, he was not home when they came by. So then they just went on to the number two slot on their list, which ended up being the Steinmans. And on Sunday, July 30th, Taylor and Justin knocked on the door of their home while Don waited outside in a van. And the Steinmans were excited to see them. Like I said, they thought of Taylor as a friend. Right. But then um, once they were inside, Taylor and Justin pulled a gun on them and forced them to sign paperwork that he had prepared liquidating their assets. A manager from the Concord branch of Morgan Stanley Dean Witter said that he got a phone call from Annette Steinman saying that she wanted to liquidate all of her investments. And he said that she sounded nervous, like Uh there was a level of tension in her voice. But even though the request was unusual, he honored it. And he says now that he wishes that he never did, you know. Right. So he went ahead and liquidated her assets. And then they gave the Steinmans, um, they made them drink uh, Rehypnol. Mm-hmm. Then they made them write out two checks, one for $33,000 and one for $67,000, so $100,000 total. And then they took them back to Justin and Don and mm-hmm. Taylor's house. And they were hoping that that they would just die from overdose of the roofies. But when they didn't die and they were kind of in a coma but still breathing, they took them into their bathroom where Justin bashed (gasps) Ivan's head in against the tile floor and Taylor slit Annette's throat with a hunting knife and made Dawn watch. That's horrible. And then they even like prayed over their body and said, like, thank you for sacrificing your life for the greater cause. So this whole time they're all on hallucinogens. Like that's where they they had all these ideas while they're probably, but yeah. I don't know if like the whole time they were on. Right. It. Yeah. So I mean either way, it doesn't matter. This yeah. is awful and horrible. I'm just like these ideas are so crazy. Yeah. They you're like how do three people all be like, "Yes." I mean, I'd, yeah. I know that it works that way sometimes with cults or cult personalities. I think that Taylor was the crazy one mm-hmm. and then everyone else just followed suit. Yeah. And this is where it gets really graphic. It well, it already got graphic, but they ended up having to cut the bodies to pieces with the power saw and Taylor made Justin do it uh-huh. because Taylor said that he had more important things to do like sit and meditate and listen to the spirit. Uh-huh. And so he made Justin do all of that and they um, put them into the body parts into gym bags and then put rocks and stones into it. Then the next day Dawn ended up going into the Walnut Creek in a wheelchair and wearing a 
flamboyant. It's like, it just gets crazier and crazier. Okay. So she goes, ends up going to this bank in a wheelchair and wearing this like crazy lime jumpsuit and this like gold cowboy hat. For some reason, Taylor thought the more crazy you look, the more that they'll forget what you look like. And it's like, dude, that's oh. the opposite of how that works. But I think that it's, there is some like is psychology there? behind that. They'll only remember your outfit, but they won't remember your face. Oh, maybe. Yeah. I think there, then. I think there is like some, some, there's some crazy science in there. So she told the teller that she needed to deposit the two checks into a bank account. She was in disguise because the checks were not made out to her, but they were made out to someone named Selena Bishop. And she told them that she was a friend of Selena Bishop's family and that Selena was getting open heart surgery and she needed to deposit the money from Selena's grandparents into the account immediately so that she could pay for the operation. So she said she was doing the family a favor by agreeing to deposit the funds. So yeah. the bank was like, okay. And then they, <laughs> they were like, that's a very it. elaborate story. You can just deposit a check. Yeah. <laughs> just, just put it in an envelope. Yeah. So Selena, who was Selena Bishop? Yeah, that's what I want to know. Selena Bishop was a beautiful young 22-year-old who was looking for romance, they said, when she met Taylor Heltzer at a rave in the spring of 2000, probably when he was recruiting his call girls ah, right. for uh-huh. schemes. She was actually the daughter of Elvin Bishop, who's a famous blues guitarist. Okay. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, but I believe he is. Selena spent two years at an art school in Pennsylvania before she moved to the Bay Area where she got a job waitressing at um, uh, this place called the Two Bird Cafe. So she met him, and um, here again, here's this guy, six foot five, with a ponytail, which were <laughs> all the rage back then, yeah. and black clothes, and she was intrigued. <laughs> and he told her that his name was Jordan. Mm-hmm. So she told all of her coworkers about her new boyfriend, but... All of her friends and family were uneasy about this guy named Jordan because he refused to tell Selena what his last name was, what his home phone number was, and he wouldn't allow her to take pictures of him. He was like this man of mystery. And he didn't (laughs) want to meet any of her friends. But she was in love and she just wanted to be with him. So he had told her that he was going through a a terrible divorce Uh and then that's why he needed to like lay low and he didn't want her to have all this information about him or whatever. And so in... Early that July, Taylor Jordan helped Selena move out of her mother's house and into an apartment studio. So her mother, who was 45-year-old Jennifer Valerian, had only met Taylor for one second because she knew that she wasn't allowed to meet him Mm -hmm. and that she didn't want him. But here's her daughter, you know, and she was like, I'm going to get a glimpse of this guy if I know he's at her apartment right now. So she went to her apartment when she knew that he was going to be there and faked having to borrow a blouse from Uh her daughter just so that she could see him. Yeah. And she apparently told a friend afterward, well, he's cute. He seems like a real nice kid. So, um, and Selena trusted Jordan so much that she actually gave him a key to her new apartment as soon as they moved in. But Taylor obviously was completely playing her. Mm -hmm. He told Selena that he was about to inherit money from his grandmother and that he needed to hide it from his ex-wife. So he convinced Selena to open four bank accounts in her name for him. Uh Um, And that's all bullshit because under California law, inherited money is not considered community property in a divorce. Did you know that lawyer said? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. (laughs) And so 
so he was, of course, using her to launder his money that he was planning to steal from the Steinmans. Right. And from other people, probably. And apparently she started to get frustrated, you know, with his secretiveness. And she wanted him to finalize the divorce already so that they could finally move forward. And on August 2nd, she met Jordan at a trendy bar in Berkeley. And a bartender testified that she was really excited and in a great mood because they were going to the next day. He told her that they would go drive to Yosemite National Park for a camping trip. And she thought like, oh, finally, we're going to like spend a lot of quality time together and we're moving forward. And so she hoped that he would open up more to her, you know, on this trip. So they left the pub and went back to Taylor's house where Taylor offered to give Selena a massage. And then they went into the family room and she was laying down on the floor and he was giving her a massage when Justin walked in to the room with the hammer and started beating her over the head with it. This is like, I know, this is the hard part. And so after um, Taylor then carried Selena into the same bathroom where the Steinmans were murdered, he saw that she was still alive. So he pulled her head back to show Don Selena's face and said, Spirit says you get to know this isn't a dream. And then he slit her throat with the hunting knife. So sick, and oh, that makes me so sick. And so they disposed of her body in the same way that they disposed of the diamonds, and they put her body into pieces into the duffel bags with the rocks, and then they took all of the duffel bags that contained both the Steinman and Selena into the Steinman van, <laughs> and then drove them and dropped them into the Makaloon River. But unfortunately, the killings did not stop there. Like I said her mother saw saw him and so because he knew that the mother had seen him he knew that she had to be killed you know in his right. mind he thought that she had to be killed so he knew that because they were on about to take this trip that selena's mother was going to house it for her and he had a key mm-hmm. to her apartment so in the early pre-dawn hours of august 4th Taylor drove to Selena's studio apartment and Jennifer, her mother, was there, but she wasn't alone that night. James Gamble, who was a 54-year-old patron from the bar that she worked at, was there with him. And so Taylor let himself into the studio with the key that she gave him and he went to the bed where they were sleeping and shot them both at point-blank range. And so this this is so brutal, but it's also so convoluted. If they wanted to kill the whatever 15 mormon leaders it's like obviously you're killing people so just go kill those people i know i mean i don't want those people to die but i'm just like this plan is ridiculous i also just don't understand the brutality if you have a gun why are you bashing people's heads in right like i mean not not that a gun is any i hate to say that a gun is better the brutality of beating people's heads in and slashing their throats it's just so unnecessary yeah and the whole thing is so fucked it's like yeah i know i don't know why i'm trying to make sense of this but i just also am like i don't get where this is i don't get the threat of it and for what a hundred thousand dollars it's 
I know. Yeah. It's just crazy. And okay. so, so Selena's upstairs neighbor and landlord, James Soliday, heard the gunshots and came downstairs and found their bodies after which he called the police. So the police come, they find Selena's mother murdered in her house, but they mm-hmm. don't know where Selena is. Right. And then a few hours later, when Selena failed to show up for her shift at the Two Bird Cafe, her friends, con- which I don't quite understand because she was supposed to be out of town, but this, that's what the reports say. Yeah. Her friends contacted the Marin County Sheriff's Department issuing a missing persons report for her as well. And so when police were questioning Selena's family and friends, they all told them about this weird new boyfriend named Jordan that none of them were allowed to meet. So police wanted to know who this Jordan guy was. So they put out an APB for Selena and this boyfriend. And on the same day, that August 4th, the Steinman's daughter reported her parents missing after her, she called them a million times and they wouldn't answer. And they noticed that newspapers were piling up on their doorstep. But when police came to the Steinman's and talked to their daughter she told them that she couldn't think of anyone that would want to harm her parents yeah this nice little old couple but then they looked into the couple's finances and when they saw that their assets had been liquidated and the two checks for a hundred thousand (gasps) dollars went to selena Selena bishop oh my it's yeah points together so now all these cases are linked right but police are like what the fuck what did these all have to do with each other so on sunday august 6th Two days later, this Diamond's Chevy Lumina minivan was found in an industrial neighborhood in Oakland uh-huh. near where the river was. And inside it, all they found was a bloody chainsaw. <gasps> and so they were able to lift four sets of prints from the van. And two of the prints belonged to the Steinmans, and the other two were unidentified but set off to a database, you know, to see if they can see who the other prints belonged to. Yeah. Which later they did find that it was Justin and Taylor's prints. But at the time, detectives go to the bank where Selena supposedly cashed these checks, and that's when the teller tells them it wasn't Selena that came to the bank, but this other woman who mm-hmm. was a family friend. And in the gold cowboy hat. And when they looked at the footage, they're like, what the fuck? Who is this woman? Yeah. They couldn't identify her either. And luckily, for some reason, Selena's left her pager at work. Uh-huh. And so they gave her pager to police. And they had seen that um, the a number that had repeatedly paged her on yeah. like the days leading up. And when they traced the number, they saw that it belonged to the house where Justin and Taylor were living in. And this was before burner phones, so yeah, caught. Caught. When investigators came to visit, all three of them were there. Justin Taylor and John were all at the house, and deputies swept through the house. They found ecstasy, hallucinogenic mushrooms, and drug paraphernalia, but Mm -hmm. no gun. They arrested the three of them on drug possession charges. And another thing that they found is they found paperwork, financial paperwork that had the Steinmans information on it and they're like why would you have yeah financial information on the Steinman so when cops went to arrest them Justin and John surrendered and Taylor bolted and left and he went through the back of the house and he leapt over a bunch of backyard fences and he ended up forcing his way into a neighbor's house the resident her name was Mary Mitsuchi 
looks Italian. Matsuchi, <laughs> he like demanded a weapon from her. He was like, give me a weapon and I'll kill you if you call the cops. So she gave him a steak knife and a pair of sewing scissors. Uh-huh. And he went into her bathroom and he cut off his ponytail and changed into her husband's clothes and then ran into the backyard. But the police eventually caught up with him a few blocks away. <laughs> They're like, you're still you. Yeah. <laughs> We're not... This isn't a movie. Oh my you God, well, gone. And they, he forced him into a car. Like you're still 6'5". Um, <laughs> and then even when they put him into a squad car, he jumped out the back window. Who left the window what? down? And then they had to chase him down again. So they did... They, so they did... Get him. Uh-huh. But then later that same day, the first two of the duffel bags that um, contained their remains surfaced, floated to the surface of the Makaloom River. DNA analysis quickly identified mm. that it was the Steinmans and also Selena. Yeah. One thing that's like really hard to say is that they put all of the body parts in different bags and jumbled them up because they thought that then they would be harder to identify. These sick motherfuckers. Yeah. Sick fucks. So as they all sat in jail awaiting their trial, Taylor tried to sell his story of the murder spree for $400,000 to several magazines and nobody touched it. They were like, fuck you. Yeah. Like, you're not going to make any money off of this. So they charged all three of them. And actually, that's a, you can't. Yeah. Like, it's illegal. Yeah. You can't pay some... You can't profit off of a crime. They charged all three of them with 18 felonies, including murder, extortion, and kidnapping. And the physical evidence that they had included receipts for the handheld power saw, shackles that they had bought, a ski mask from sporting goods stores, and then also several plans of action that Taylor Helzer had written out that Uh detailed the entire scheme. So it was like he guilty, guilty. You know? Yeah. And so, so prosecutors were seeking the death penalty for all three. Mm-hmm. And so Dawn, feeling like she was an accomplice, but she never killed anybody right. per se. But she went along with everything. She felt like they offered her a plea deal in exchange to testify against the two of them, so that instead of the death penalty, that she would receive a sentence of thirty-seven years. Yeah. And she took it. And in June 2004, when Justin's trial began, he pled not guilty for the murders by reason of insanity. He said that he was brainwashed by Taylor. But on June 16, 2004, the jury found him guilty of 11 counts, including murder, extortion, and kidnapping, and he received multiple death sentences. But then when Taylor went to court... Mm -hmm. To everyone's shock and surprise, he actually pled guilty without a plea deal. Oh. He just right away said guilty. And apparently his lawyer was looking at him like, dude, what? And he was like, it's okay. It's okay. The spirit says. Yeah, spirit says guilty. Yeah. And so he was hoping for leniency because he pled guilty beforehand. But when the trial began, Dawn testified that she didn't follow Taylor's orders because of the cult or for religious reasons uh-huh. like it, it wasn't because she thought that he uh, it wasn't because she was in a cult she said that she followed him taylor's orders because she was in love with him and that apparently they were having an affair of course they were behind justin's back and she said that she was only with justin to be with taylor and as a second child always in their sibling shadows that devastated yeah Justin. 
You right, know what exactly. I mean? He was my one thing. Yeah. And like, you know, he trusted his brother and followed his brother and the whole thing. They were having an affair the whole time. So the jury found Taylor Heltzer guilty on all accounts. Mm-hmm. And he was sentenced to five death sentences, one for each victim. And so Dawn is currently serving out her sentence in the Central California Women's Facility in Couchilla and is eligible for parole in 2042 when she'll be 68 years old. Taylor is still on death row awaiting execution. Uh And in 2010, probably because of, you know, everything, like the betrayal and the despair and being in jail, and he was always more sensitive of the two, Justin Heltzer attempted to take his own life by stabbing himself in the eye with pens and pencils. And he blinded himself. Oh, jeez. And then Man. and on April 14th, 2013, Justin Heltzer was found dead in his cell. He had hung himself with his sheet. And that is the end of the story. Jen. So fucked. That's so fucked. I know. That's so brutal. I know. Oh, my There's goodness. There's so much to it. I can't believe I hadn't heard of it. Because it's no. such a wild, crazy story. And so many people were involved in so many deaths. It's horrible. It's a horrible story. So sorry. So sorry. So sorry. So sorry. Yeah, that's why you got, you know, people who have magnetic personalities, you got to get away. Usually murderers. (laughs) Yeah, usually murderers. I don't care. If somebody somebody seems real cool, get away. Or how about at least if somebody tells you that they are the second coming of Christ. (laughs) Maybe that's a better rule. (laughs) Then run away. Run away. Yeah. Yeah. If somebody wants to name, if somebody's like, hey, let's form a group and let's call ourselves Children of Thunder. (laughs) (laughs) Unless it's a really cool 80s hair band, then run away. Run away. Oof. That was awful. Okay. Okay. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for... For a love story. I've never been more ready for a love story. Yeah. This one is, it involves a lot of, it's a feel-good story. It also, there's some tragedy in it, some big tragedy in it. So I just want you to prepare you for some ups and downs. Uh, But I'm going to take you to Happy Town. And what's kind of crazy is that we, so just before we took a little break and Jen and I were just talking about I have a, I'm drinking out of a Hamilton cup <laughs> we were talking about Broadway and just how amazing it is to see people living their dreams and and anyway but my story randomly it involves a long distance romance an entire town in Newfoundland and a Broadway musical okay and also 9/11 so there's okay. that i got my information from people.com the New York Post, from official London theater, the CBC, Theater Mania, and a documentary called Operation Yellow Ribbon. So, okay. On September 11th, 2001, thousands of miles from New York City, the Pentagon, and Pennsylvania, and within hours of the attacks, the FAA closed the United States airspace. So I don't know if you remember, all flights were grounded, but then nothing, nobody could come into the U.S. airspace. So there were hundreds of flights en route to the U.S. They were mm-hmm. stranded in the air with nowhere to land. So for many of the flights that were in reach of Canada, Canadian air traffic control was scrambling to find airports for these flights to land in. And this was what was called Operation Yellow Ribbon. And they actually landed 38 passenger airplanes and four military flights 
at Newfoundland's Gander International Airport. Newfoundland is northeast coast of of Canada. It's like mm-hmm. the little part that comes across. There's, I mean, it's very remote. So, but as a result of the detour, 6,759 passengers and airline crew members, plus nine cats, 11 dogs, and a pair of endangered apes all wow. arrived in Gander, which is a very small northeastern town, and it doubled the population. So the population is 9,000 wow. of the entire area. And so 7,000 people arrived within like... 7,000. Wow. Yeah. Within like three hours, they all landed. So, But then once the planes landed, the passengers were still not allowed to leave their planes for the first 24 hours. So people were just sitting oh, on the planes nightmare. because... You know, first, customs and security had to get put in place, so they're in this tiny place. So all these people, they had to get customs and security in place to clear all the passengers to make sure there weren't any terrorists on board. So during this time, the passengers were told what happened, but they didn't, there was no way to, like, see the video of the planes crashing into the towers or any of this I mean, this was 2001, so hardly anybody had cell phones. And if they did, they didn't work. They were now international calls. And one passenger said it was very unnerving and scary. We were okay, but we didn't know if our family was okay. So while the people on the planes sat, the tiny town of Gander sprung into action. And when people were finally cleared to get off the planes, they were only allowed to bring their carry-on luggage So these stunned passengers go out and they found there were just like tables and tables of food sat up for them. Oh, how nice. Yeah. The people of Gander had cooked all night long. They made every kind of sandwich. They gave each person got a bag and it was kind of like Halloween. They said that you would just go from table to table and like pick the things you want. They have fruit and brownies and pies and cakes and they had made everything for these passengers. So all of these people showed up within a three-hour period, and they were fed three hot meals a day. Every day they were there, which ended up being five days before anybody could leave again. Um, And they were all stranded there. There were no other flights. They couldn't take buses, no cars to rent. There was no way for them to leave. So the passengers, actually the people of the town, nicknamed the passengers the plane people. And they were quickly invited into the Gander community. Perfect strangers were invited into people's homes. They were given meals, beds, new clothes. School bus drivers in Gander had been on strike when the planes landed, and they agreed to put down their picket signs, and they volunteered to transport people from their planes. Schools were converted into shelters. This one school, Gander Academy, held 770 travelers. The teachers and students worked to organize everything, and because the people on the plane were held so long, the first guests didn't arrive until midnight, but because they knew, the Canadian people knew that the passengers were going to be traumatized and exhausted, they said, we'll wait. We're all going to wait to greet them because they need people here and they need some comfort. Wow. And one of the teachers said that like after a few days... One of the passengers asked them, where's your military? Everything's working, and I wonder why we don't see any uniforms. And she said, it's just our community. We just jumped in and made it happen. Canada. I know. So another another teacher at a school, Brian Mosher, he's a journalist. 
as well. And he jumped in to kind of basically become the news for everybody. So he would announce where people could find food. Everybody was organizing these like big fish fries and whatever. And he said one time, uh, one of the passengers was like, oh, I'd like to try moose. And so he made an announcement and then people started bringing moose (laughs) to this one passenger. And then he would they would these people were setting up activities for the passengers and so he would announce where like concerts were going to be and where you could go hiking and he said that on the fourth day that people were there in the morning he played the canadian and the american national anthems over the pa system and he said first there wasn't a sound and then he says there were sobs and everyone was crying yeah so like restaurants and bakeries in the town donated food Um, pharmacies provided everything from diapers to medications to feminine products, like everything. And they set up in the schools, they set up phone and computer systems. Walmart cashiers would invite perfect strangers home for like warm showers. And then at the airline hangar, it was turned into an animal shelter where all of these pets, many of which were traveling alone, could like run and and stretch. Um, There were like townspeople that took it upon themselves to take care of the animals. And no one was charged for anything. And they said when when they would ask people, like when the passengers would ask people, like, what do I owe you? They would say, nothing, you do the same for us. Aww. So this is just a couple little stories about people on the planes. One group of terminally ill children was flying from London to Walt Disney World for their birthdays. Um, it was like a, a make-a-wish oh, yeah. flight. So, so this police officer, Oswald Fudge, his daughter and her teenage friends learned that they were supposed to go to Disney World, they created a pop-up Orlando at a school, complete with entertainment, street treats. Fudge says his daughter dressed up like a local mascot, which is called Commander Gander. (laughs) And three girls from the class dressed up as fairies. A bakery made a cake for 350 people. We had balloons and stuffed animals. And one of the fathers said, my daughter's wish was to go to Disney World, but even if we don't get there, it's okay. We had such a good time here. She's not sad. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. This woman, Balula Cooper, who was retired opened her home to anyone who wanted to come in and shower. And she made a connection with these two Long Islanders, Hannah and Dennis O'Rourke, who were very upset because their their son was a firefighter. Um, he worked in Crown Heights and he hadn't been seen or heard from oh, when his no. because his company um, responded to the call, the World Trade Center. And Balula Cooper, her son was also a firefighter. So she, you know, they spent a lot of time together and they drove around and talked. They talked about the dangers that their sons um, face, but how it's what they wanted to do and you hope for the best. And unfortunately, two weeks after the airworks got home, their son, Kevin, was found in a stairwell of Tower One. But since that time, the families have stayed in touch. They speak frequently on the phone. And Balula says... Hannah never hangs up the phone without saying, I love you, and I do the same with her. And they are still best friends. So one of the planes that was diverted to Gander was on its way from London to Houston, Texas. And on that plane, there was a woman named Diane who had been in England visiting family, and she was on her way home to Houston. Diane had just celebrated her 60th birthday. She had a job in Houston. She had kids, grandkids, all from a previous husband. She was divorced in a little apartment that she loved back home. And also on that plane was a man named Nick Marson. And he was a 52-year-old British citizen who worked in the oil industry, and he was on his way to Houston for work. And like Diane, Nick also had kids from a previous marriage. 
Diane was in the front of the plane and Nick was in the back of the plane. And so even though they sat on the plane for 30 hours, neither of them crossed paths during that time. Instead, they first met in line at a pharmacist where they were both picking up prescriptions because they couldn't get their luggage. So they all they had was their carry-ons. And then they met again when they were both assigned to lodging at the Society of United Fishermen, Lodge 47. And so they both were in line to get a blanket for their cots. And there were like 70 people staying at this this place, just all cots, you know, next to each other on the floor. And Diane made like a joke that the blankets, she was like, oh, you smell like mothballs. And Nick laughed and he kind of was like, it was like an opening for them to start talking. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so they're chatting and Nick was like, hey, can I share a cot next to you? And she was like, yeah, of course. So... The following day, they watched they watched the international news about the attacks in New York City. They were, you know, it was the first time they saw the footage. Yeah. And Nick said it was, like, disturbing to watch. And so they said, okay, let's go for a walk. Get out of this. And there was another couple. There was another couple of people, a man and a doctor from Cincinnati, who decided to go walk with them as well. But... Nick says, as luck would have it, the lady was wearing sandals. It was a gravel road, so they didn't get very far. (laughs) And so they went back to the shelter, and Diane and I carried on walking. So the two bonded. They had that kind of bond that you can only form when you're going through a traumatic experience together. But it was just like this a friendship. Both of them were a little older, and they were neither of them was like, oh, I'm going to get on this plane and find romance. You know, they both were like, this is a crazy experience. I found someone that I can talk talk to. Yeah. So sparks kind of started flying that night at this event called a screeching, which is where visitors to Newfoundland take a shot of whiskey and then they must kiss a fish to become honorary Newfoundlanders. Newfoundlanders. Uh, honorary Newfoundlanders. Newfies. Newfies. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, you get it. People from Newfoundland. Um, so... This the guy who was like kind of masters of ceremonies looked at this looked at Nick and Diane and assumed they were like an old married couple oh. and then they were like no no we just met he goes oh I'll I'll marry you here you know and Diane just kind of laughs and was like sure why not and just as a good, good joke yeah and Nick says oh it kind of like sparked something in him and so the day after the screech. The two went for another walk at this place called Dover Falls. It's this beautiful, historic place. And Nick was like, I'm going to take a picture of it. And Diane, you get in. And she she was like, oh, I started to step out of the way so he could get a picture of this view. And he said, no, 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 stay there, stay there. And Diane thought like, oh, okay, this guy wants a picture of me, Uh you know. And and she was right. Nick says, like, at that point, I didn't think I was ever going to see her again after we got back onto life's treadmills. I wanted a picture to remind me that this really did happen, which I just love so much because I did the same with Ben. Uh-huh. We talked about that. Where, yeah. like, the first time I met him, I was like, I'm probably not going to see this guy again. So I just, like, snuck a picture of him across the campfire. And little did I know I'd be seeing him every day. <laughs> The next he's right there. <laughs> he's the right behind room. me. <laughs> he's just, he's always over my shoulder. So that, that moment led to their first kiss, which was the next day before they boarded their flight to the U.S. when the FAA had reopened American airspace. And Diane says, I was upset. It was raining. We were leaving. We just left all of these people we'd met. And when Nick went to comfort her by like kissing her on the forehead, Diane says, I feared he'd miss. So I just grabbed him and gave him a big smooch. And Nick says, that changed the whole relationship right there. Diane thought, well, it's now or never. Once we get back, we'll never see each other again. But Nick says that her kiss lit a fire under me. He said, he was like, good Lord, I thought those days were over. So if this... How old were they? 
so he was 52 and she was 60 oh, at okay. the time. And like, if you think like this whole event sounds like the beginning of a movie, it's because this and many of the stories from Gander actually have been told in a lot of movies. They've wow. been turned into a movie called Diverted, a book called The Day the World Came to Town, multiple documentaries, and speaking of musical, Broadway musicals, a Tony-nominated musical written by Irene Sankoff and David Hine called Come From Away. Wow. And Nick and Diane's story is actually kind of the center of the musical. And they tell a lot of the different stories of the people that day, the those days when all mm-hmm. of the planes were in Gander and all of the, you know, what the townspeople did and for the passengers. But it kind of all revolves around their story. So... After they left Gander, the two actually were on back on the same flight going from Gander to Houston because Nick was like, I got to finish my work trip. But they spent time together in uh, Houston. And once he left, they began emailing and talking on the phone. And very they were like instant, like, we got to get back together. So Nick was making plans to come back to see Diane that October. And Nick says, the first week after I got back to the U.K., I would look at that picture that he took of Diane Aww. in the mornings and it sounds stupid now, but it really, I just wanted to make sure it really did happen, that it wasn't a dream. And so he returned in October and then over the phone in November, he proposed. Wow. So he said the following was an emotional roller coaster year where he traveled back and forth trying to get his visa in order. And then on September 7th, 2002, almost a full year after their first meeting, they got married. Wow. And the Marsons honeymooned in Newfoundland. And the mayor of of Gander wrote a song to commemorate the occasion. Oh, how sweet. Yeah. So uh, in 2011, in time for the 10th anniversary of 9-11, a documentary film crew was interested in their story. And he brought the couple to Newfoundland, which is where they met the couple that wrote Come From Away. Wow. So the Marsons have actually seen the Broadway musical Come From Away at least 107 times <laughs> in six cities and two countries. And they said they both cried at their first viewing. And Nick says watching the play is like renewing our vows. So the couple has now been married for 19 years. And Diane says that over the years, they've struggled with survivor's guilt. Yeah. She says, like, why should this wonderful thing happen in the wake of a disaster? It didn't seem right. She said she, you know, she can't help it when she's thinking about the loved ones, especially the children who were born after their parents were killed in the World Trade Center. And Nick says, I think it's always in the back of my mind because it didn't seem right that we should have received this extra dose of happiness. So many people were suffering. But Diane says there is a lesson in their love. She says, in the darkest of circumstances, good things can still happen. The world is in turmoil, but don't shut yourself away. That's the end. That's the story of Gander. And 9-11 and Nick and Diane Marson. I love it. And the lesson of the story definitely yeah. resonates right, right now. now. Yes. It's like, <laughs> yeah. okay, keep maybe, yourself open. Beautiful things can happen. Maybe I will do that BuzzFeed article that Naomi suggested <laughs> about more coronavirus love story. Dude, good story, good story. Thanks, good story you. Yeah. All right, Jen, should we do something dumb and something we love? Sure. I think this has been an extra long episode. I know, so I'll make it short. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Something dumb. The cops who killed Breonna Taylor still have not been arrested. 
That's very dumb. That's dumb. If I have to say something that I love, and you do, Jen, I do, I do. That's it's the rules. Part of the rules. I'm gonna. There's a show on HBO. Like a podcast oath. <laughs> I just watched one episode of it, but I really loved it, and I can't wait for everyone to leave me alone so I can go watch the rest. <laughs> Get out of my face and stop asking me for things. It's called I May Destroy You, and it's on HBO. I just really love the actress. Her name's uh, Michaela Cole. Mm-hmm. But um, so it's a show that's in set in London, and it's about she's like a cool, funny writer, young, and like goes out on a night in the town when she's which I know a lot about when you're trying to write something and you find ways to. Uh, Oh, just do anything, anything. Yeah, that. yeah. So she goes out, and but her drink is spiked, and uh, so now the like the show is about her questioning. The, I'm reading now the description because I want to like articulate it better. But she must question and rebuild every element of her life. Pretty. So I've only watched one episode. So yeah, I can't say anything else about it. But so far, it's really good. And um, I don't know. Give it a shot. Maybe you might like it too. Yeah, I I think I re- was reading about it, and it's the the woman who is stars in it, wrote it, and produced it, and loosely based on her experience from uh, her first writer job, writing job. Really? Yeah. Good. I can't. I am excited to watch that. My something dumb is everything, and especially right now, what's weighing on me is schools reopening. And yeah, and I think. We were talking about this beforehand and and bitching about. So I don't want. I mean, everybody's trying to make decisions that are best for their family, and it's really hard. It's just really hard with with you have to work or yeah. uh, what you know, trying to be safe for your parents and for teachers. I can't imagine what they are facing, the decisions they're facing, not only for their own families but for themselves and and for single parents who have to work but then yeah. also need to school their children. Yeah. And do you decide to? It's just. It's, imp- it's an impossible decision, and yeah. there are no nobody's offering any answer that seems like a reasonable one. Yeah. So, um, so that's just that's dumb. And I, I, I am sure I know we have a lot of listeners who are parents, and um, just know we are there with you in these really really tough decisions. And something I love is my family. We have started doing like every other week mostly um, Zoom calls with my brothers. Oh, cool. And I, I, I love my brothers so much, but we have no, we're not like the best at keeping in touch with each other. Right. And, and, but and I'm, the wor- I'm the worst of all of us. But they have been really good about being like, okay, let's do this, this this Sunday at whatever time. And so it's just been so delightful to be able to catch up with them on a regular basis and yeah. see my sister-in-law and uh, my brother lives in Seattle and my nephew. And then my brother lives in, in Florida, just kind of like catch up and especially when everything's so crazy. And I feel like it was like my mom's biggest wish that we would all be close. Yeah. And I think that, that it would make her really happy to know that we're all really supporting each other through everything. So yeah, so yeah, so that is something I love. I love that too. Yeah. Uh, all right, dude. Um, so that was an episode. That was an episode. We were all over the place. We took you up and down and all around. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the roller coaster. <laughs> you know, if you want more of this, find us on Patreon. We're doing fun stuff over there. Please rate and review us. That would be real nice. We'd really love that. Yes. And stay inside or go outside with a city mandated mask on and do something dumb for love. Dum-da-dum, dum-dum, dum-da-dum, 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 dum-da-